you will open your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to read the first 11 verses in just a moment. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, uh, beginning in uh, verse 1, a, a text I, I think that should be uh, fairly familiar to it. We have gone there on a number of occasions over the years, and uh, I find uh, there in this text one of the most concise statements uh, regarding uh, the, uh, the very core of the gospel uh, that we proclaim. And so uh, we began a series today uh, in, in which and by which we close out uh, the year 2021 and we begin to look forward uh, to what God is going to do in us, through us, uh, for us uh, in uh, 2022 and, and even the years uh, beyond. So uh, I've, I've simply called this Renew uh, 22. And uh, as is the norm f for me, uh, these types of uh, year-ending and, and year-beginning type sermons uh, tend to try to draw our attention back uh, to, to core issues, to fundamental issues, to, uh, to basic issues uh, related uh, to the, the gospel of, uh, of Jesus Christ. And so uh, today we will look at, at the gospel as that which has, has been accomplished in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In our Christmas series, and I think you can kind of see a, a bit of continuity, Christmas is all about the incarnation of our Lord. We, we celebrate uh, the fact and we celebrate the way the Bible explains and introduces uh, to us uh, this uh, great historical truth uh, that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, second person in the Trinity, uh, came uh, to our earth uh, as a man uh, for the purpose of, of our salvation. And so we thought deeply about that. And, and as we kick off the year and, and we move forward and, and, and really uh, uh, very quickly uh, we'll be at Easter. Uh, in a sense, Christmas is the celebration of the person of Christ. Easter, the celebration of the work of Christ. It, that's, that's a kind of hard distinction, but, it, but it, it's something that is worth uh, thinking about. So we have been celebrating uh, the great reality of uh, who uh, Jesus is. And so uh, as we begin our year, we want to look uh, uh, at the, the gospel itself in a more of a kind of a, a theological kind of framing uh, what uh, the death of Christ accomplished and, and what it means. Uh, we'll talk uh, then in, in coming weeks uh, about uh, its application and really by application what I have in mind is how do we how do we know how do we live in light of all the privileges that Christ has gained for us through his death and resurrection and uh, then the the implications, what, what is true uh, about us and our relationship uh, with God. Then uh, we're going to look at the expansion of the gospel uh, in terms of uh, evangelism and then uh, kind of a, uh, a final application type uh, uh, sermon in terms of as we continue to live in this, our fallen and very flawed world. 
And nowhere has that been demonstrated, at least in my lifetime, more clearly than in these last two years. So, is the gospel very simply this? This is what God has done in Christ. My sins are forgiven and I'm going to heaven and there's just nothing else to say about it. Or does the gospel inform us uh, to, to live uh, in, in a way that uh, blesses our lives so that we become a blessing to others, it informs us so that we legitimately live with, with a, a great sense of, of joy and hope in a world that is, that is permeated uh, with despair and hopelessness. And so that's where I hope to get to uh, in these, uh, these next uh, few weeks. And so today uh, we look uh, once again at the historical reality of uh, the, the gospel, but also begin to understand uh, how it is uh, the incarnation of Christ and his involvement uh, in life in this world, how it does come to save us and how it is that it truly is ultimately the good news. So read with me, if you will, Paul's words in 1 Corinthians, verse 1, chapter 15. Now, I would remind you, brothers of the gospel, I preach to you which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James and then to all the apostles, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, uh, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me, whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. So pray with me. And Father, we thank you for the goodness of your grace, for the truth and the power of your gospel, uh, for the great privilege that you have so worked in us that we would receive, that we would believe your truth, that our sins would be forgiven, and that ultimately we do live with great purpose and great hope uh, in a world that is uh, filled with despair and hopelessness. Our confession is that we are inadequate in and of ourselves to say anything that would uh, matter uh, all the way into the corridors of eternity, and we would desire to say that which will ultimately matter. So we ask you uh, to give us the, uh, the ability to understand and to speak, those that have gathered the ability uh, to understand and that your spirit would apply to all of our hearts uh, your great truth uh, for our good and for your eternal glory. And Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name.
Amen. The text that we read uh, first this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, again, I remind you that was the uh, text that I uh, first preached upon my initial arrival 18 years ago uh, at Centercrest Baptist Church. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That is, that, that the, the core of who we are, what we say, what we do, is the reality of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, at least for a, a second time in the course of this epistle, uh, the Apostle Paul ca calls upon this church, and I think by extension he calls upon every Christian, every church, in all times, in all places, to remember uh, this great truth of the gospel, which he preached, and every man that God calls to stand before a people to preach is called to preach the gospel. That when Paul speaks in 2 Timothy, charging him to preach the word, he is saying, preach the gospel of the incarnate Son of God who has entered our realm to suffer and die for our sins, for our salvation. And he's saying, that's what I preached, and you received it. You, 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 you heard it, and you have taken your stand on, on the basis of what has been communicated uh, to you. We don't think much in the modern church in the course of the lives of probably all of us gathered here today about the gospel being our stand or that upon which we stand. But you need to know if you're not paying attention, and I can't believe you're not paying attention, but the culture is pushing on us. The culture is pushing upon us. And we are going to find ourselves in the position that indeed we're going to have to brace ourselves. We're going to have to take our stand. We're going to have to, be, have to be prepared to take a blow. And I mean this very metaphorically, and I mean it in a, in a very positive. We're going to have to be able to deliver the blow of the truth. Okay, Paul can speak about demolishing the strongholds, the arguments. Well, that's, sometimes that's what you have to do. You have to demolish the insanity of what people believe that inhibits and prohibits them from coming to this very gospel and receiving it so that they uh, may be saved. And so these people had heard, they had received, they've taken their stand, and they're, notice the language there, being saved. Now, uh, most of you have heard it expressed that when we speak of salvation, well, we can speak of we have been saved, we can speak of we will be saved, and we can also speak in the present tense of we are being saved. There is an ongoing gospel work, an ongoing work of word and spirit that is saving us from the great reality of our own sinfulness, of, of our own tendency to look and long for the world. You see, I think incipient in all of us is just a little bit of Lot's wife. That, that sometimes we, we, we look back and, and long for the things of the old life. And so we are being saved from our own sinfulness. Notice there, though, the condition. If you hold fast. Not gonna, I, that's not going to be really my, my thrust here today, but I keep coming back to that. That at least carries with it the connotation of what I keep referring to as a lost doctrine in, 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 in the evangelical and the contemporary church, the doctrine of perseverance, or to kind of turn it the other way around, maybe the more biblical way, the preservation of the saints by God. That He preserves us 
in salvation by His Word and by His Spirit. And it, it looks like, and we don't want to get incredibly judgmental, but we can kind of say this, that we look like we are being saved, okay? I'm saying that kind of advisedly and it kind of metaphorically, but, but, but there is a reality those who receive, those who believe, those who have taken their stand, uh, that we're being saved, and the reality is we're, we're holding fast. I, man, I find out, seems like with every passing day, that the only way I can live is by holding fast to the truth. Uh, the world I once knew is, 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 is being destroyed. It, it is being dismantled piece by, by peace, okay? And, and so we hold fast, and, and, and let me tell you something, uh, that, that, that indeed we can speak metaphorically, we're, we're tossed by the storms or whatever, but, but, but what? The anchor holds to the truth of the gospel. God will preserve uh, His people. And again, that, that interesting final phrase in, in verse 2, unless you be, believed in vain, and as I've read this so many times over, over the years, and, and maybe he really has that double meaning because he stop, talks about the truth. If Christ be not raised, same chapter, chapter 15, then you know we of all men should be pitied because we have wasted our lives. We have given everything away. We have given up on everything that we once counted as valuable for the sake of the truth that Christ has been raised. And because He has been raised, your sins are indeed forgiven. Okay? And if that hasn't happened, then you placed your, your faith in the wrong object and you're lost. You're hopeless. And so maybe He has that in mind. Or maybe He also has in, has in mind a more subjective sense that you have a demonic type faith in that you accept the facts that, that you're not disputing the presentation of the Bible, but you ultimately haven't savingly believed through the necessity of being born again and truly been vitally attached to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this gospel that he preached, that was received, in which they stand, by which they're being saved, what they're holding fast to, can be... Boiled down, this doesn't say every detail of the gospel, but it gives us a, a, a great outline. And, you know, if you're, if you're talking to someone and, and, and they ask you, I'm not sure I understand what the gospel is or what the gospel is not. And as I say, trust me, uh, and I've, I've, I've used this I don't know how many times, but uh, one ministry went to a, a group of supposed Christian businessmen this huge organization, thousands of people there. They're supposed to be Christians. And ask them a question, could you explain the gospel to, to me? And you would be shocked at how far wide of the mark these explanations of the gospel were. And I don't think things have improved in 20 or 25 years in the visible, professing, supposed evangelical church. But the gospel is rooted in, in the historical work of Christ that Paul says that he delivered, they received, what? Christ died for our sins. As we've been looking at, as we talked about the incarnation, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of everything that was promised. Well, he died in fulfillment of the things that God had promised under the Old Covenant recorded in the, uh, the Old uh, Testament. And so Christ died, that he was buried because he was 
really dead. That's what you do when people die, okay? That he really was dead, and God reversed that by raising him uh, from the dead. And so at its, at its very core, if somebody, what is the gospel? Well, it's what God has done for us in Christ in that just as the Bible said God would do, he sends his son, he dies for our sins. On a, he dies on account of our sins. He dies in payment for our sins, fulfilling the Scriptures. He, he was buried as predicted and prophesied in Scripture. And just as the Scripture said he was, he was raised on the third day. And this is an irrefutable truth. I'll say more about that in just a minute. But he appeared to these disciples. And, and one of the most uh, substantial pieces of evidence that we have uh, for the proof, the truth of the Gospel and the Bible and the, about God and Jesus is he appeared to 500 people. And there's no possible way to come up with any type of myth or legend or hallucination or uh, uh, some kind, kind of fake, uh, some, some, anything other than the fact that really happened. Just as the Apostle Paul uh, uh, says. And so he goes on and uh, shares a little bit that this Christ who was raised ultimately appeared uh, to me. And again, that's what qualified Paul, in a sense, to be that that great apostle. He is one that saw the resurrected uh, Christ. And so if any of you think that you're apostles here today in that specific technical sense, uh, you are automatically disqualified because you have not seen the risen Christ. Okay, that's one qualification. So uh, don't ask me, can I, can I put on my nominating card this year, I want to be an apostle at North Clay? The, the answer is no. Okay, Just, so don't, don't check that box. I'm, I'm trying to get Johnny to take that box off of the... Okay. All right. Let's talk about then the gospel as the accomplishment of our Lord Jesus Christ. An accomplishment where eternity breaks into uh, history, in, into time and space. And I'm trying to think about this, uh, kind of the image that eternity is the sprocket Think of your old bicycle, uh, the sprocket that drives the chain of history, okay? Uh, that that, that, that uh, time and space don't define eternity. Eternity defines time, space, and history. And so Jesus Christ, the eternal one, enters into that chain of history. But to be sure, even while he is in the midst of time, space, and history, he is the sprocket driving the whole process, Okay? He, he is defining uh, that, uh, uh, that process. And so this accomplishment, the, the accomplishment of the gospel is rooted in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've already said, it seems to me at Christmas we, we celebrate rightly the person of uh, the, the Lord Jesus Christ. That he became the incarnate God-man entering uh, this realm, this, this realm of time and, and space. And the gospel is about the work of Christ, fundamentally but not exclusively the work of Christ uh, at the cross to atone for our sins. And so those things uh, are essential to each other. They're essential to the gospel. That someone dying on a cross would have no benefit to you if he weren't the person the Bible defined him to be, namely the, the God-man, okay, uh, the incarnate 
uh, Son of God. There have been many people that have died heroic deaths, sacrificial deaths, whether in the course of war or in the course of other types of, of conflicts where they willingly give their lives up so that others may live. Uh, the, the, the records of the wars of, of the course of history uh, tell us that there are often men and even women that are willing to do that. But just being a hero doesn't make you a savior. A savior is the one who by his death can actually save. And it has to be this singular, unique person of history and of eternity. His name is Jesus Christ who came into the world to do this work that we celebrate at Christmas Namely, uh, the, uh, the atonement. And so you cannot uh, separate those things out. And so in this incarnation, John can speak of him as the one who was uh, the, uh, the, the, the word became flesh. And he dwelled among us and we beheld his glory, the glory that was of the only begotten of the Father. So, so they, they saw this flesh and blood person. And, and later Paul would write in, I mean, excuse me, John would write in, in, in 1 John, man, we've seen him, we've heard him, we've, we've touched him, and, and, and he's real. And, and if you'll remember when we did the Lord's Supper last week, I wanted, I wanted to emphasize, these things that you're holding in your hand, they're real. They're, they're material. And Jesus Christ entered the material realm. He entered the course of history for the sake of our salvation, for the sake of our uh, redemption. And so we see that very terse, very simple explanation. How did God become man? How did the second person of the Trinity through the uh, through the design of the Father and through the activity of the Holy Spirit, uh, the, uh, the Virgin Mary, she was uh, uh, overshadowed by the, the very Spirit of the Most High, and the Son of God conceived in her, and He became the incarnate uh, God. And so that's history, that's real, uh, that is uh, true. Uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit uh, in Mary, so that He becomes what Paul speaks of as the, Second Adam. Now, that, that really doesn't make a lot of sense to any of you if you don't have a, a kind of a broad understanding from Genesis to Revelation of how God has worked in history. You need to understand that when God created Adam and placed him in the garden, he placed him under a covenant of works. And part of that covenant was, okay, you, you are to be fruitful, you're to, to fill the earth, you're to subdue uh, the earth. All of these things were, were the mandate, and there was a prohibition. Do you remember the prohibition? There's a tree in the midst of that garden. Do not eat of it. And let me tell you, if you do, you will surely die. That, that death will come to you. And, and, and Adam did, and he did, okay? Uh, that, that's kind of the, the, the short of it. And so... Adam rebelled, plunging all of humanity into sin and rebellion. We, we all fell in Adam. And so God sends His Son as a second Adam to reverse the curse, uh, so to speak. Christ, in His incarnation, defeats sin and Satan and even death itself. Let's, let's turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 2 for just a moment and just kind of see. They, uh, this, this writer kind of fleshes this out, I think, quite, uh, uh, quite well, actually. He, in verse 9 of chapter 2, speaking of Jesus, 
he speaks of the reality uh, of that he tasted death for everyone. By that, those who will, the everyone is those who uh, believe. The, the, the believer gets the benefits of Christ and his victory uh, over his experience with death. But go over to verse 14 of Hebrews chapter 2. Now, speaking of us as children, we're flesh and blood. Jesus Christ shared in that flesh and blood. He, put, he partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear and death were subject to lifelong slavery. And so again, goes on and speaks of the fact that, uh, uh, that it's the descendants of Abraham, the descendants of faith, not, not the descendants by biology, and that Christ did this because he was like us. He was that second Adam. He becomes the, the faithful high priest, and he does what? There at the end of verse 17, he makes propitiation. We'll talk more about that in, in just a minute. makes propitiation uh, for the sins, and so uh, he, he has entered our realm, He's experienced our experiences, and he has tasted death, uh, defeating sin and Satan. And as Paul can point to later in, in our text in 1 Corinthians 15, that that, that that sting of death has been removed. Death hasn't been removed from our experience as of yet. Uh, uh, we, we will die, death, and probably... If, if I went around the room, uh, death has uh, dramatically and, and deeply affected all of us in the loss of loved ones, okay? And so uh, death is a, a universal reality. It has come, but for the believer, that, that sting of death, uh, which seemingly is that we stand accountable for the holiness, for the law of God, and we will be condemned on the basis of that law, okay? And so if you're still under the weight of the law, you should be rightfully frightened of death. But for believer, for the believer, that sting has been removed through the accomplishment of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, defeating uh, sin, defeating uh, Satan, uh, defeating uh, death uh, itself. We'll talk more about the resurrection in just a moment. And he, he has done this in a sense because he is the perfect Lamb of God, because not only was he perfect in essence, he was perfect in his performance or perfect in his obedience. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it, Matthew 5, 17, meaning that every demand God had for man was carried out in the person of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so salvation has a bit of a, a two-fold type of, uh, of aspect to it. Uh, his, his death, sometimes referred to as his passive obedience, and his life of obedience referred to uh, as his active obedience. And so uh, we receive forgiveness through uh, the atonement. We receive righteousness through the active obedience of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's why it's so important, you see the last thing in, in Roman numeral 1, to have some sense of, of our identity in Christ. We looked at that extensively 
uh, in the Sunday that we did uh, our last baptismal service in Romans 6 that we are uh, buried uh, like unto Christ we're raised to walk in the newness of life that, that uh, his death his death being uh, the, the just judgment for sin is counted as our receiving the judgment for our sins the, the good news of, of the gospel is that Christ died in our place and that he was raised, and that is a promise that one day what? We too shall be raised, that death really has uh, been defeated. And so the accomplishment of the gospel is in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ through his incarnation and accomplishing, you see, that, that kind of list there. Uh, the gospel is, is rooted in, there is no gospel, we can say no gospel apart from person and work, but the kind of the you start getting even more narrow. The gospel is all about the atoning work or the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ, that which, that which he did uh, uh, on the cross. Uh, Peter can speak of the fact that we're not uh, redeemed with the perishable things such as silver and gold. We're not purchased out of the slave market of sin uh, by the normal way of thinking about economic transactions. We've been purchased by the, by the, uh, the, the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The author of, of, uh, of Hebrews can speak without the shedding of blood. There is no remission or no forgiveness of sin. And so Jesus Christ as the God-man and the, the perfect man who was perfect in essence in his being and purpose, uh, perfect in his activity, that is, he perfectly obeyed God's law, that is why he can be the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That's the way his cousin John the Baptist identified him. He saw him coming and said, Behold! We've heard enough beholds lately, haven't we? Behold! That means, hey, wake up and smell, uh, smell the coffee. Pay attention. Behold, this is the Lamb of God, and if there's going to be sin dealt with and removed from you, if you're going to be forgiven, it is in Him who is exclusively, uniquely, the Lamb of God. And so he is the perfect sacrifice in that he is effective. He actually accomplished what all the Old Testament sacrifices look forward to. Okay, And to whatever extent you can say they were effective, they were only effective in the sense that they foreshadowed the ultimately effective sacrifice that is the giving of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I say it's effective. I say it's sufficient. And I'm not, I'm not crazy about the word sufficient in that, in my mind, the connotation for sufficient is kind of barely enough, just enough to get by. The, but probably that's just my kind of read on it. Uh, sufficient uh, goes with effective, and it was abundantly that which was needed for our salvation. He has abundantly supplied everything through his death on the cross that we need and because it is effective and because it is sufficient it's final okay John's gospel records that final word of the Lord uh, Jesus Christ translated into English three words it is finished tetelestai uh, a perfect past tense verb that it's once and for all an accomplished action on the part of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the implications will reverberate all the way into eternity. Okay? That death of our Savior on the cross. 
And so Jesus is that uh, atoning sacrifice. We're told in uh, Hebrews 9 that unlike what happened on the Day of Atonement and the other days in which various sacrifices were, were offered, Jesus Christ enters uh, the greater and the more perfect tent, that which was here on earth, tabernacle, temple, any one of the three temples. All of those things were, were just shadows. They were a place to enact a drama that was designed to communicate guilt and forgiveness. That you are guilty and there must be a means or that God has provided a means for your forgiveness. And it was anticipating an ultimate and final sacrifice which the writer of Hebrews says really wasn't poured out in a room in Jerusalem. It was poured out in the ultimate, the, 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 the perfect tabernacle uh, in heaven. And he did that because, again, he is the perfect sacrifice. He's also the perfect high priest. There's several things the author of Hebrews notes about that. Now, if, if I were a high priest, and I'm not, you know, I've, I've told you I want to be a king. I'm not a king. I'd be a great king, but I'm not, okay? I'm not your high priest either, okay? And, and you, you, can be, you can be thankful for that probably. Because, you know, talk, if I were to enter the Holy of Holies, now I like y'all a lot. Well, I like you. But I'd be very concerned about my sins that I wouldn't come out alive. They, they tied a bell onto the tassel of the garment of the high priest and then they tied a rope around his ankle just in case things, things didn't go so well they could drag his carcass out of there. So if I were your high priest and you, you, know, you gave me my list of Pastor Tim, high priest Tim, and don't anybody call me high priest this week. Okay, I've said I'm not. Here's my list. I glance at it and I say, well, wait a minute, let me, uh, God, let me tell you about my sins. Jesus isn't like that. He has no sins that he has to resolve and to deal with and to be concerned with before a holy God. He knows his sacrifice is sufficient and he is without sin. And because he is eternal, that death cannot make its claim. I mean, you know, you get a decent high priest and the old guy kicks the bucket. And then you've got to find another one, and he may not be worth a flip. And the two or three that follow him may not be worth a flip. Okay? And, and so Jesus is that perfect high priest. You remember the argument of the order of Melchizedek. He wasn't Aaron's descendant. He wasn't a Levite. He was a descendant of the tribe of Judah. He was of the royal line. But he's also of a line of an eternal order of priests that superseded, preceded, transcends that of what was accomplished under the law in naming the Levites, the children of Aaron, as the priesthood. So he is our perfect high priest that thankfully has atoned for sin. In the course, again, time, space, and history, real material world, okay, eternal meets the temporal, he atones there for us at uh, the cross. And so we can see, now, you know, growing up, there, 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 there were a lot of things that I could say that I think were flawed about what went on in my church. And as I say, I, I, I knew a whole lot about not 
dancing, drinking, and smoking. Okay, I, I got that one. Okay, I heard I heard an awful lot about that. And all you women, you wore your skirts too short. Okay, just just so you know that. Okay, and so we I got plenty of that grow, growing up. Moralism, legalism, which which always ultimately leads to license. Do you know legalism always leads to license? It's always abused. But anyway, so got plenty of that. But you know, one thing I, I got from an early age that I understood, and it's a phrase that, that is a good theological phrase, is the concept of the doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement of our Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ, in His death on, our, on the cross, He suffered our penalty. Okay, He paid our penalty in full. There is nothing left for you to pay. It is paid in full. It has been stamped. That certificate of indebtedness has been canceled by Christ. And so he suffered the penalty as our substitute. Okay? He represented me on that cross. And so I've, I've given several words here related to the idea of atonement that I think are important. We've seen them all before. Uh, propitiated, and that's the idea of the wrath of God being satisfied. It is right. Now, please hear me when I say this. Please. please. I fear too often that what, what is called the church has this view of God that he's just this great guy that just, man, he just gets a kick out of watching our antics. That, that, that he, that, 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 you know, I've, I've had grandchildren for, for several days and they've, they've been all around. I love watching them. But you know what? Sometimes they, they transgress the law. I'll just put it that way. Okay? All right? Now, now, God is not some, and I'm not quite senile. I'm on my way probably. But he is not a senile grandfather up in heaven giggling over your stupidity, your rebellion, your obstinance, your, your, your willful disregard of what you know to be the will of God. He is a holy God. And by that necessity, it is right, it is just, it is good that every sin be rightly punished. And there's two ways that sin is ultimately resolved. One is through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ propitiating the wrath of God. It is satisfied, okay? The other way is for you to spend eternity in hell. Two ways. Two ways. Sin is resolved. And so Christ propitiated the wrath of God, that, that's used a number of times. You don't see this, thankfully, I, I think propitiation is the better translation of the one Greek word, halosmos, uh, for uh, atonement. But, but there is a reality to the sacrifice of Christ was an expiation. Uh, I, think it's I think the picture of the scapegoat and him being sent out from the people and gone forever is that our guilt and our curse has been removed. God does not see us as being under the curse of our sin and rebellion, under the curse of Adam, because it's been carried away in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we can say that our penalty has been uh, paid. We have been uh, redeemed. Jesus came that, that, to, that I may come and I'm not uh, uh, to be served, but I came to, to serve many and give my life as a ransom, as a payment of uh, redemption. And so redemption is a great word and, and probably rooted in the concept of ancient slavery, of, of, a, of, of a slave being purchased out of that. And, and if, if you're an unbeliever, 
and you, you're sitting there, well, I'm free, and I can do what I want to. Nobody can tell me what to do. And you, know, the whole, you know the whole lingo. You are a slave to sin. And it may be politically correct, socially acceptable sins, okay? It may be the horrible sins that a large part of the society or a large part of the church would say, that's terrible and that's awful, and I've never done that. And I talk a lot about it. I talk about you a lot because I didn't do that one. You know, that, that type of stuff. But sin is ultimately our master. He's paid that penalty. That guilt for that sin has been removed. Its power has been broken. Sometimes I will talk about the distinction between authority and power. Authority is the right of something or someone to do something. Okay? Your government has a certain type of defined authorities that they can do things. Sometimes they lack the power to do what they have the authority to do. And, of course, increasingly we see what? They're exercising their power to do what they have no authority uh, to do. But, but, but what I want to get at here is when we say the power of sin is broken, we're talking about its authority, its mastery to define your life and your willing surrender and submission to the very principle of sin in, in your life. Okay? And that has been broken in the Lord Jesus Christ. Sin is not your master. Christ is uh, your master. And then one I, I didn't put in your, in your outline, but, but we're reconciled. And again, uh, the idea prevalent in the church today is me and God have always been good buddies. But let me assure you, you were estranged from God. And not only was he angry about sin, he was angry at you. And as it's often said, and I heard, I believe Drew said it this week, but I think he got it from me. I said it first. But it's not sin that will go to hell. Sin does not go to hell. Sinners do. And we always need to remember that. All right, so we've looked at accomplishment, person and work, atonement. Third thing, uh, the, the resurrection, the great testimony that these things are true, that death is defeated. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, later in that chapter, that he asked that question, death has been swallowed up in victory. That statement, oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Well, through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, that has been removed. In the resurrection, in a sense, we see that this is God's stamp of approval. Yet at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we see the dove descending, uh, or the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove, and this is my son in whom I am well pleased, okay? And he's saying, he's looking forward to everything that Christ uh, would do. And in that resurrection, God is saying, I am so well pleased with my son. He did all that we had planned for him to do. And, you know, the thing is, because God's wisdom is perfect, I'm not going to say he exceeded all expectations, because he didn't. God is perfect, and, and Jesus perfectly did everything that he was to do uh, in this realm. And it supplies for us irrefutable testimony to the truth of the gospel. I, I like apologetics. I got to kind of sit in on a Sunday school class this morning and talk about uh, creation, and I like talking about that stuff. It's very interesting. And, and there's a place to, this proves there is a God, this proves this, that the Bible's true. And I like that stuff and it's good. But let me tell you something. Just be sure you know this. That any reasonable examination of history, any, now, now we, we've got people all over the place rewriting, not only rewriting, they're reinventing history. 
Okay? But I'm telling you, any reasonable examination of history will tell you that there was a man whose name was Jesus Christ. He was killed on a cross outside the gates of Jerusalem, and he was raised three days later. And that's irrefutable. And if that's true, everything else falls into place. Okay, all the other stuff about there is a God, the Bible's truth falls into place. So that's a very simple uh, track uh, to, to take. But the resurrection authenticates, it validates, it vindicates, it I think there's a benefit to us, particularly when we celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Body and blood, cup, bread, real elements. He really died. He atoned for sin. But guess what? He was raised in that body. And guess what? In one day in a body, he'll return. All of those things. So uh, very true and central to the accounts uh, of uh, the gospel. And again, not only does it give us a, a real rock upon which to stand that these things are true but it's central to our evangelism and simple way of saying it if a dead man walked out of a hole in the ground you really ought to pay attention to him you, you really should it's in your own best interest that you listen to this guy so person and work of Christ the atonement, the resurrection, the ascension now I mentioned a moment ago it is finished and the work of atonement is, is finished but, and, and even the, this author of Hebrews, okay, Jesus, uh, he makes that ultimate, final, perfect sacrifice, and then what does he do? He sits down because the work is done. But he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, and he is interceding for us, which I think is, 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 is very, very important. I, I, th this week, and I, I meant to actually print it off, and things went sideways as soon as I showed up this morning, and so I, I kind of lost track of what I was supposed to do. But... There's an old gospel song. I need thee every hour. Every hour I need thee. And, and there is an idea. You know, remember going back to our text. Being saved. Jesus, I need you. As I looked at this whacked out world, I need you. I need to be reminded of your gospel. I need the experience of your power. I need the testimony of your word in my life every day. I need thee every hour not to save me over and over and over again but just as he sustains all things by the power of his word he sustains me by that same powerful word looking back at what the atonement so again he's interceding he's ruling and reigning he's awaiting uh, the time of his return and he has sent the holy spirit and again as john tells us he said i'm not leaving you as orphans i'm not leaving you to your own devices I'm, I'm not leaving you to figure it out on your own. I'm, I'm, send, I'm sending an advocate. I'm sending the paraclete. I'm going to send the one that will walk alongside you. And, and he, he will aid you on the basis of my finished work. Of my finished work. He, he, he will point back to me. And, and, and he's even going to allow you to, to remember these things that you have learned and apply them at the crisis points of, of your life. And so... He has ascended to the right hand of the Father. Again, just as historical, just as real as the work on uh, the cross. And indeed, uh, he at work as our advocate, pointing to the perfection, the effectiveness, and the sufficiency of that atonement. In other words, when I sin, the Father doesn't go Jesus back to the cross. 
back to the cross. There goes Tim again. No, he, does, he doesn't do that. I think there's a celebration in heaven. Oh my gosh, the sufficiency, the finality of the sacrifice of the Savior. He is to be praised and worshipped and glorified forever and ever and ever. Because all of the mess that Tim Evans can create has been forgiven by that one act of obedience. Okay? Well, let's look very quickly and finally at the consummation. And it really is good news. It is something that we uh, look forward to. And uh, somebody was poking me fairly, fairly recently, telling me that, you know, hey, I'm just waiting on the rapture. That is not the way Christians live. We are waiting on it, okay? But to throw up our hands and say, I'm just going to be Debbie Downer for the rest of my life is not a biblical way uh, to, li- to, to live. So there is a, a, when all of the things that were accomplished uh, through the life and the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, that gospel that we speak of, when those things will reach their ultimate perfection. Okay. Now, we're fully saved now, but there is, in a sense, a perfection that we await because we still struggle with sin and life in a fallen world. And those will not be realities in the consummation. We will not be struggling with a fallen world and we will not be struggling with Satan and we will not be struggling with these internal dimensions of the reality of remaining sin. And so he is going to return in power and glory, Revelation 19.10, and he will destroy all of his enemies by the sharp sword of his mouth. So those enemies will be defeated, and that's going to close out this era that is characterized, we talked about this this morning in in Sunday school, the fallenness of the created order. We just recently, pretty close by, experienced just some of the worst tornadoes in the course of history. Just absolutely destructive up in southern Kentucky. That is natural evil, but it is a result of the moral evil uh, of Adam, but, but... there will be no tornadoes, no tsunamis, and no earthquakes, and no wildfires, and no cancer, and no Alzheimer's, and no diabetes, and no heart disease. And none of these things will be existed in heaven because Christ, when He returns, He closes out that old order. And that groaning of creation that Paul uh, describes in, in Romans chapter 8, all of that will be over as the world is restored to a glory that's far beyond even its original design. That's why we say what? That redemption is even greater than the original state because God has restored us in Christ. So closes the era, ushers in this this new age. And this means a lot to me, folks. Revelation 21.3. It's going to wipe away every tear. Now, let me tell you something, folks. We have all cried and we will cry between now and this day. But He will wipe away every tear because that old order will be no more. And we will see it. We'll see that every thread of the tapestry of history in our life woven in a beautiful testimony to the all-surpassing glory and power of God. And we will see it in its goodness. And in that time, He will inaugurate the eternal age where He will... Remember, He creates the Garden of Eden, tells Adam and Eve what I really want to do, 
is come walk with you and live with you, be involved in your lives. I want to dwell among you. I want a people among whom I can dwell. And every activity of God from then to now is for the purpose of having a people among whom He would dwell. And right now, in the church of the living God, those redeemed by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is dwelling among us. And again, I keep coming back. The, the, the best manifestation that we have is showing up here so that we can experience in a radical way, week in, week out, the reality of what is going to be perfected one day. But we're living in fulfillment of the promise. He is dwelling among us. And that's why we look at each other's face and we see the very glory of God evident in our transformation. Okay? So, He will inaugurate that great, and final and ultimate perfect age on the basis of what he's accomplished at the cross. We sang, I believe last week, Joy to the World, and there, there, there's a stanza that at the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, when everything is perfected, all the things that have been lost in the curse, as far as the curse be found, will be restored. All things will be made new, will be made right. And so, as we move forward, we can look back a bit. These were the successes, these are the failures. This is what we look forward to. What, more, more failures? I think not. Christ has succeeded for us. He succeeded for us. And He has His purpose for us being at this place at this time. I pray that in these few weeks and in the entirety of the year and whatever time we have left uh, in this life, that we can see Christ for His infinite beauty, glory, power, majesty, uh, the, the purpose He has uh, for our lives, and that we can experience in the most dynamic, real, vital ways all that Christ accomplished for us through His person and through His work. Pray with me. Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Gospel, for the fact that we can, we can look back and we can point to, this is what You did. You did it in and through Your Son. You did it for Your glory. And for You to be glorified is for our good. And so, Lord, may we ever live in the hope and reality in the experience of that which you indeed have earned for us and given to us through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.